Good evening. How are you? Fine, thank you, Dr. Eschenau. Good, very good. I'm looking, to, I'm taking attendance as you all gather. Okay. <laughs> all right, George. Good evening, how are you? Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, Raphael. How Good are evening. you? Good evening. Good. Good evening. Let's see, Anthony. Here. Yep, I see. Okay. How are you? Very good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Great. Uh, Paul is here. Uh, Stephen Morganti is here. Uh, Daniel Castro. All right, we're still waiting. It's still a little early. We're good. How are you? Dr. Dr. Eschenauer, did you get me? Did Mars? Yes, I did. <laughs> I sure did. It's a good thing that I know you all. <laughs> And I recognize you even on camera. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> Seems so long since I've really seen you all in person. I know. True. Yeah, it's coming up to almost, it's a year almost. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, March. Wow. Another so, Easter season. That's right. September. Yep. God willing. God willing. That's when right. When was the last class? Was it middle of March? Do you know, Dr. Uh, yes, I definitely remember because on March 7th, um, we had our last public event at the seminary and I was there. I was the speaker for it. And that was the last gathering. And then the final Tuesday, I was in the classroom. And then by Wednesday, we were via Zoom. Right. Because we had our, our midterm with uh, Father Donalds, uh -huh. March 11th, I had just gotten out of the hospital. Okay, yeah. And that Wednesday, we started. That's exactly right. I was, at a, I was at a legal conference down in Tampa, and it was a Wednesday evening, and it was the first class that we did on, on Zoom. I remember, okay. and I was nervous because yes. I didn't know it was gonna work. Oh, yes, definitely. Listen, I'll tell I remember my first class via Zoom. I was nervous <laughs> hooking up, and now we're, we're all experts. <laughs> so, um, but it's not the same. No, so, um, it's not. Dr. Eschenauer? Yes? It's Chris. So while you're talking about Zoom, I yeah. said, my guys, my cybersecurity guys never tell me to patch stuff like Zoom, but they're telling me to use the new update 5.5. I guess there's some nasty little vulnerabilities. It'll never come to us. We should be fine, but they're, they're, they're recommending everyone go up to 5.5, five, five, so I offer Yeah, well, Cynthia, uh, yeah, I'll pass it on. Cynthia Harrison is uh, the one in charge of all that. I was going to email her and tell her that, but I didn't want her to think I was a know-it-all, so I didn't. <laughs> you know, she's, she's usually in contact with them, but uh, we've added the passcodes, 
has added security. Last year, we didn't use passcodes. Yeah. You know, uh, there's there's yeah. all kinds of little nasty things inside of it right now. So yeah. it's, it's a major, it's a major revision. So it's probably yes. Okay. I'm sure I'll mention it when I uh, speak with her, but, um, yeah. You know, I, sure. So what is it? It's, it? What is it? 5.5? Yeah, all you do is you literally go up to your, your profile picture, hit look for update. Uh -huh. it, it'll update it for you. And it's your, your yeah, I'm, I'm sure she. It also gives you this nifty blurred background feature that they stole from Microsoft Teams. Oh, I see that. Look yeah. at that. Yeah. So if you have a messy room, you can. Uh... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, Rock, how are you? I see you there. Rock. Yes, okay. Yes. Good, good, good. Let's see. <clears throat> oh, ah. You can hear Jim. Oh, <laughs> That's your mic off, buddy. Bill Mayer is, is, uh, might be a little late. He might join in late. Um, he's uh, en route from Brooklyn. So let's see. We still have a few minutes, but let's see. Oh, Victoria, how are you? Hi, guys. Doing good. How are you? Good, good. Okay. Staying warm? Yes. Good. I see John. Very good. All right, let's see. Everybody on that page. Chris Greer, why do I see two of you? That's possible I opened up a second session. I'm oh, sorry. yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I said, oh, he's here twice. Well, I, I like the class so much. You like it so much. There you go. Okay. That's really his no, doppelganger. Yeah. That's weird. I don't have it open twice. Maybe that's a bug. That's a bug, a bug of your new upgrade. In the 5.5. <laughs> Stephen Morganti, I uh, was looking for Stephen Nyer. 
And then, as I said, Bill uh, Mayer will probably tune in late. So we'll we'll just wait a few more minutes. Dean, how much snow did you guys yes. get down in Long Island? Um, let's see. We, uh, we had at least a foot where I live. Uh, but it varies depending. I live on the North Shore, like two blocks from Long Island Sound. Okay. So we get uh, usually whatever uh, uh, Chris Greer gets <laughs> and your Bridgeport guys. What you get, we usually get where I live. Um, we're, we're in Westport. It's not allowed to touch the ground here. We pay for that. So <laughs> we all have heated driveways, so we don't. Yeah, we have heated roads. Everything. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. We don't no, have wait. Where I am. Yeah. We had like we almost got two feet. We probably got. I think I have 18 inches, 16 inches here. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, my son right. up in Kingston had 14 inches. Yeah, we had we had close to two feet. Mm -hmm. But if you go another about 10 miles, eight to 10 miles west of us, over in Montague, they had three feet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It depends on, you know, where you go. Of course, of course, yeah. Uh, let's see, Daniel Cornell, are you on yet? No. He's what? He, he's, he was having a hard time logging oh, in. Okay, all right. He, he's been logging in soon. Okay. All right. We'll just give it till five seven o five before I begin my introductory remarks and prayer and all that. I see Stephen Nyer, okay. He's coming in. See him. Now, have there any arrangements been made for uh, Father O'Reilly? Any level mass or? Um, I don't believe they've been made public yet. Okay. Um, maybe tomorrow. Um, it's yeah. been. I don't know what's the holdup. You know, uh, something's holding it up. Um, yeah, that I wanted to make that my introductory comment certainly oh, yeah. to. Um, let me just, I think almost everybody's here. So, um, yeah, I mean, certainly we've all had the shock of our lives, I think. No matter what has happened over the past, I mean, I've had several losses, and I know some of you have told me you have as well, but, I mean, this came as a total shock to us all. Um, and I know that he was uh, certainly beloved by you all, um, every student, I've gotten a lot of condolences, which I thought was really nice because people know that we work so closely together. So I want to thank you for that. But I really want to, you know, do this class tonight in honor of him. You know, um, it, it meant everything to him, the intellectual formation of all of our students seminarians, MA students, deacon candidates, 
uh, we work really hard um, to make this a reality for you. So um, I dedicate this class tonight to him. And you know how I always say, forget about everything you left behind and everything you'll go back to. And I would ask you if we just, just take a moment and maybe think of, just think in your heart of your best memory of Father O'Reilly. Let that memory really be soaked deep within you and hold on to it forever and think about it throughout all of your coursework. And um, we, in honor of him, um, I think we should, we can all pray together uh, to Our Lady that she will wrap her mantle around him as he enters into eternal life. So Hail Mary. Full of, grace. full of grace, the Lord is with thee, thee. blessed art thou of women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. St. Joseph, pray for us, amen. Uh, I guess the class I feel the most uh, heartache for tonight is um, Trinity. Uh, they are carrying on with Dr. Hunhout, who is full-time professor, uh, teaches seminarians in the morning, but teaches the evening classes uh, in Douglaston and Huntington. Uh, but he's been a long-time professor with us, and he took over the class because um, that's his area of expertise as well. But um, I'm sure that they will have a hard time tonight. So keep them in our thoughts as well. So we carry on, right? As Jesus says in uh, John 14. Yes, and that is, thank you. That's my f favorite. Um, do not let your hearts be troubled. And we have to have a lot of faith in that because uh, we are certainly troubled. So we're gonna make the best of tonight uh, with this class. Um, I feel a little scattered, but I, again, I want to honor him and do my absolute best uh, for you uh, as well. So here we are, session three already. Uh, the weeks go by very quickly, I think. Um, but um, if you recall, just before we go on to our uh, agenda for this evening, which is on the second slide, I just want to uh, briefly last week uh, remind you that we looked that a little bit of a brief history of pastoral ministry, and we noted uh, this shift that took place with the Second Vatican Council in relationship to ministry and the theology of ministry that we will look at tonight as well a little bit more deeper. You remember we start broad and then we keep narrowing down in. Um, uh, if you remember that I, um, 
I mentioned that the council was pivotal, pivotal in claiming pastoral as an ecclesial discourse, because remember, it was a pastoral constitution, all right, called by John the 23rd. Um, I also mentioned the interplay um, between the, all of the documents, and I specifically mentioned Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes, and that it's never a good idea to read uh, documents in isolation. Uh, we need to read them all and look for the interplay between them because they, they build on each other and they were developed from each other. Um, let's see. So this, this is our outline for this evening. Okay, we're going to look at a theology of ministry briefly because we could spend 14 weeks on a theology of ministry. So I'm going to introduce it to you. And then what I want to really take a look at is this model uh, that's proposed by one of the authors I mentioned last week, um, Ed, Ed Hennenberg. Um, uh, and I'll introduce you to the model that he proposes called a relational approach to model. And he has a book by that title that I believe is on your bibliography for recommended reading. And then very importantly tonight to talk about theological reflection and actually what the method of theological reflection uh, is, uh, this process. Um, so we'll, we'll um, go more deeply into that. But that's the plan that I hope to get through tonight, all right? Uh, to, to as we continue on our journey through um, pastoral ministry. So. Um, you see up on the slide, I have a quote from Thomas O'Meara, who was a Dominican priest who wrote a book called A Theology of Ministry. It's a very extensive book, probably 400 pages or so. But he writes that Christian ministry is the public activity of a baptized follower of Jesus Christ flowing from the spirit's charism and an individual personality on behalf of a Christian community to proclaim, serve, and realize the kingdom of God. Kind of a mouthful, but I think there are some key words uh, in that. First of all, that it's public. That um, Christian ministry is a public activity, all right? In other words, we, when uh, you're in ministry, you are acting in the name of the church, not in your own name, you know, uh, that you are acting in the name of the church and uh, as a baptized um, follower of Christ, a disciple, okay? And that it's flowing from the Spirit's charism that we talked about last week and you can read about in the Kathleen Cahallan's book, one of your required readings. Uh, in other words, that we all have a special gifts, these charisms, all right? And, that the, and the other key phrase, on behalf of a Christian community, that's what I meant when I said that we minister in the name of the church, and that's, that's key here. But Thomas O'Meara is a, a wonderful theologian uh, who did write extensively um, on ministry. And the interesting thing, I mentioned Ed Hannenberg, and I have the next quote. This is Edward Hannenberg. Now, 
Thomas O'Meara directed Ed Hannenberg's doctoral dissertation. And that's why Ed Hannenberg, who is much younger, I'm not even sure if Thomas O'Meara is still alive. I, I'm not certain. But Ed Hannenberg really took um, that idea, the ideas of Thomas O'Meara seriously and has really devoted much of his, all, if not all, of his research and writing to this. And in his book, Theology for Ministry, which is a very small book that's written primarily for lay ministers to introduce them to a theology of ministry. But he says ministry is any activity done on behalf of the church. So he's pretty much echoing what Thomas O'Meara says. Um, any activity done on behalf of the church community that proclaims, celebrates, and serves the reign of God. So he really is echoing um, the words of his own mentor. Um, I think in, in light of um, what um, Father O'Meara and Ed Hadenberg are saying, it's important to keep in mind that this concept of ministry in the Roman Catholic Church really expanded since the Second Vatican Council. I mean, certainly when we looked back at the history and we looked at the ancient church, um, we had a sense of um, ministry that was much broader. Um, but that same sense was brought to fruition since the Second Vatican Council. And that was mainly due, as I said last week, to that shift in ecclesiology which is very much related to New Testament views of ministry. In fact, uh, the principles and the vision for ministry in our contemporary church since Vatican II really do lie deep within the New Testament. All of those uh, citations I gave you last week, um, that's a, really what um, our theology of ministry is rooted in. So for example, if you remember, a lot of it was from St. Paul. I had mentioned that St. Paul was um, a terrific uh, pastoral minister, that he really knew how to integrate um, theology and practice. Um, so, you know, you could go back to uh, last week's uh, slides and um, remind yourself of those citations from St. Paul. And that's where uh, the Second Vatican Council, remember, really picks up on um, um, practices of the um, early church. That was a very important part of the scholarship that went into the Second Vatican Council. And you remember when we talked about Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, which draws a theology of grace and a vision of the church as a sacrament in the world. And remember, the most important thing I pointed out last week was chapter five in that document, the universal call to holiness. All right, so this theology of ministry that we're talking about, uh, that Ed Hennenberg is talking about, Thomas O'Meara is really rooted in that whole idea of this uh, universal call. Um, and again, that represents a significant shift 
um, that ministry and mission belong to everyone, clergy and laymen and women, okay? So that's an important point. And I think last week I quoted Lumen Gentium paragraph four that uh, really does allude to that whole idea, all right? So um, that being said, let's, let me move on. Uh, the, oh, the, what I wanted to just uh, allude back to, forgive me, as I said, I'm a little bit scattered tonight, but that's okay, you'll forgive me. Um, that Ed Hammondberg and Thomas O'Meara are basing their writings and their research on what I just said, all right, related to New Testament vision of ministry and certainly this idea of mission and ministry that we get out of Second Vatican Council documents. All right, you good so far? Making sense? It's all coming together, right, from uh, last week? All right, so as we move on to this uh, next slide, call and vocation. It's important to realize that ministry is closely related to vocation or calling. And again, if you're reading your textbook, you're going to get a lot of this. Uh, the textbook, uh, certainly I've read it, but you have your text to read as we go through the course and it's gonna affirm everything that we're talking about uh, through the course materials. So when we look at ministry, we need to um, use vocation in its broadest, most inclusive sense, that it can refer to ministry or state of life. But um, you know, when we hear vocation, what do you think of when you hear the word vocation? Uh, what? Creative life. Career. Oh, yeah. yeah, usually, in in the narrow sense it's introduced to us we think about the call to priesthood or religious life right but um really the sense of vocation has to be broader than that all right to reflect this more biblical and traditional vision of god's presence in the world because um and as you will read in uh, your text god calls everybody in a variety of ways, okay? And um, Thomas O'Meara, who I quoted a couple of slides back in his theology of ministry, he says that ministry has moved from being a vocation for a few to being a gift and work of many. In other words, what he's saying is that vocation is a facet of baptismal life. And uh, that, that really brings up an important point because baptism in itself, we have to look at our lives that we are living out our baptismal vocation. That's something very important happened at our baptism. No matter when it occurred, and uh, probably for most of us, it happened when we were infants or children. Um, but the point is, no matter when, we are living it out, and it's a vocation to be lived. And that's a point, um, again, just like the universal call to holiness, where I was saying last week how in 
pastoral practice, in my experience, people are very surprised by that. They're just as surprised to hear that we live out our baptismal vocation every single day, or that we should be living it out. Um, it's like those of us um, who are married, all right? You have your wedding day, you have the event that celebrates something going on in your life, but your marriage doesn't end there. It begins there and you live it out every day when you wake up in the morning. So it's the same idea. Baptism is a specific event to a certain day and time, but it's it should be lived out and we need to remember that. So Thomas O'Meara is building on that and he's saying that ministry is a facet of baptized life because we're baptized into a community that is ministerial or commissioned because in and through our baptism, we really have the right and we have the responsibility. Um, and I'm paraphrasing Vatican II here, but we have the right and the responsibility to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ in the world according to our own gifts, okay? Um, so a call or a vocation to ministry comes with baptism. And I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again, uh, you're all here, I would venture to say, because you're living out your baptismal vocation and you're listening to um, you have that discerning ear, which we'll talk about when we get to theological reflection. Um, but but you're, you're living it out. Um, and that's why you are all here with such great enthusiasm. I see Daniel Cornell, you made it in. <laughs> good. <laughs> okay. How are you? Uh, very good. Thank so, you. Um, so far, so good. Makes sense? Yes. Very good. Okay. Um, the other thing that I want to mention here, um, well, let me go to the slide first, and then I'll then I'll mention. Uh, you see on the slide how vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. Okay. So we're talking here about ministry or a state of life. Okay. Uh, and again, here we have the quote uh, from Thomas O'Meara, which I paraphrased. It's moved from being a vocation for a few to a call for many, and it's a part of baptismal life, okay? I didn't realize I had that on the slide, very good. But what I want to mention now, before I go on to the next slide, um, is this idea of baptismal life. Um, with the Second Vatican Council, there was this revitalization of the church as the body of Christ. I think this is, uh, it's, it's worth just uh, reflecting on it for a minute because it's significant to this shift in ecclesiology that we, we saw with the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. So in uh, Lumen Gentium, we hear the church referred to as the body of Christ. And uh, we are members of a body. And the point that I want to make here is that every member uh, plays a part. And again, that's a reference to St. Paul's letters. Um, and you're, you're all familiar with that theme in St. Paul. But I also want to say 
that this is not this is not new with the Second Vatican Council. This concept of the body of Christ, we can go back to 1943, uh, Pius, uh, Pope Pius XII encyclical on the mystical body of Christ. Um, talks about how important it is. And even prior to that, in the earlier part of the 20th century, uh, the, um, with the liturgical movement, um, the idea of the mystical body of Christ was extremely important. Um, it, it became very important um, it, uh, using the example of liturgy that we worship as a body, the body of Christ. In other words, we're not, um, well, pre-pandemic anyway, we're not 900 bodies in the church. We are one body, one assembly that gathers. And that all uh, comes from this uh, concept, this beautiful uh, theology of the mystical body of Christ. And it's just, this isn't a little aside, it's a little aside, but this was very important to the early renewal of the liturgy, uh, which goes way before the Second Vatican Council. I think I mentioned last week that the, um, I know I mentioned it yesterday in my other class, but I think I might have mentioned it to you. The Second Vatican Council put a lot of things in motion that were going on for 100 years. But this idea of the body of Christ was very important to um, the uh, liturgical renewal um, that we would look at um, the uh, look at the church as an assembly of the baptized that comes together to worship. But the other thing it was very connected to was social action. And this was something that was uh, very, very important to Dorothy Day, for example, um, that she truly saw the church as the body of Christ and that overflowed into her work uh, with the poor. And I think that's really significant that we can, we can integrate those two things, you know? Um, so anyway, that's just a little bit of a side to really emphasize this whole idea of the mystical body of Christ and how important that is. But for us, in this course, studying ministry, it's important because we're all members of this body and um, every member plays a part, right? Okay, make sense? So here again um, on this slide, the theology of ministry is the theology of grace because it is the divine presence that calls and enables service in men and women. So again, very very important, that idea of grace, that we share in divine life in and through our baptism, okay, through the sacraments. Um, a fundamental theology of ministry then begins with the Holy Spirit. And we definitely saw that uh, last week when we looked at um, that, that whole idea of charisms. That comes from the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's, it really, and you'll see this when we talk about theological reflection, how important this becomes that we try to live our lives really in tune with what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us in our lives. And again, I think that we are all here, um, and you're all doing what you're doing 
because of you're paying attention to what's going on in your interior. All right. But Thomas O'Neill is taking this and he's connecting it with ministry. That ministry is this um, this call uh, that comes out of living uh, in union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is what we refer to as grace, God's self-communication with us. All right. You all know that from your, some of your other courses, I'm sure. So um elements of ministry all right and this is uh, straight out of ed hennenberg's theology for ministry but he refers to vocation which we talked about and in your kathleen callen book she talks about that relationship with god all right and that's what i was just referring to being in tune with how the holy spirit is is acting in your interior life and and having that relationship and i think last week when we were uh talking um about our experiences of people and everything we even brought up that um some of you mentioned that many people don't realize they have a relationship with god and again this is something that on the pastoral level we need to bring to people's awareness I think um, there's a book of Sherry Widow, Forming Intentional Disciples. And it's a book, if you're familiar with it, um, the first half of it is hard to get through. It's just a lot of statistics. And I can remember when the book first came out, one of the seminarians said to me, oh, you have to read this book. Um, they read it, they were all enthusiastic about it. So of course I bought the book and I started to read it and I couldn't get through it. So I mentioned it to him one day and I said, I can't get through it because it's all these kind of depressing statistics, you know, uh, in the church. And uh, anyway, he said, get past that, uh, which I eventually did. But anyway, one of the statistics is that 42% of people don't even realize they have a relationship with God. That's, that's a lot. And so that's something as pastoral ministers that we have to bring to the forefront and help uh, people to become aware of that. That yes, uh, God is constantly inviting us into relationship with him and all we need to do is respond. But we, we, are, we are always called. So it's this, that whole thing about call and response that Ed Hannenberg actually brings up in the book. And this is what leads to the next one, this personal transformation. You know, uh, we'll never be the same again on a good, you know, in a good way. Uh, when we recognize that God is active and present in our life, it changes everything. And again, when we look at uh, the concept of theological reflection, this is going to be important. Recognizing this action and presence of God in our life. I can remember when I was in uh, pastoral ministry, that was the message that I gave to first graders, I gave to confirmation candidates, I gave to parents, I gave to adults, teachers, you name it. But one thing I wanted them to never forget was that God is active and present in your life. And it makes a big difference. And, and I shared with people that I remember the first time I heard that. 
And it was, I was probably in my early 30s when I heard that language. God is active and present in your life. I don't remember anything else that was said that night. Uh, it was in a uh, session for the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. I was sponsoring someone. And I can remember the priest that worked with us said those words. I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember, I can't remember anything else but that. And all these years later, I never forgot it because it is so vitally important that everything that we do depends on this relationship with God and it makes a huge difference. That's what I mean by, and that's what Ed Hannenberg means by personal transformation. We will look at the world differently. We will look at the pandemic differently. I, I've said this before. It gives us a different set of uh, glasses so that we can see clearer, okay? And then the final element um, is certainly mission, uh, that we are, we are called to, be, to um, be engaged in the mission of Jesus Christ in the world by virtue of our baptism. All right, we're all called to do it by virtue of baptism, but the point of ministry, uh, uh, public ministry, is that we, uh, some people are called to do this in a particular way, okay? How you doing? Make sense? Thumbs up? Good. Good. Oh, yeah, good. It's a lot of, it's good stuff. Uh, and it's, and you know, we could go so deep into this and I'm basically skimming the surface uh, with you here, because as I said, we could we could take any one of these and create 14 weeks just on the theology of ministry. And I'm trying to just give you, you know, uh, uh, the surface here. You know, what's on the surface? Um, when we at the middle to end of the course, when we get into individual ministries, and we talk about them, you know, a lot of this will make a lot more sense and we'll be able to make specific um, reference to some of these key concepts that that I am giving you uh, here as well, okay? Dr. Eschenauer. Yes, Yeah, I think Anthony. You, I think you could take those four points and you can describe many people's lives. Ah because each one of those points is relative to everyone's life, meaning mm -hmm. not only their vocation, but their entire life, how they, you know, how, if you if you were to break down all, if you sit down and you just think about all the things that you've done in your life, um, and you're honest with yourself, mm -hmm. and you look at these things, you can actually break every single one of them down and come up with you know, the fact that it is a relationship with God that creates a personal transformation, that creates the mission that you're on, that defines your life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, very, that's, that's terrific. Uh, and certainly uh, it is. There, there is a very uh, close um, connection with everything, with theology in general and life, you know. And we, we, we get that because um, we are studying it systematically, but hopefully we're integrating it into how we think, how we feel, uh, into our, in other words, into our experience, uh, which we're going to talk about later tonight. But it, it's very true. 
uh, what what Anthony uh, shared with us. I think so. Does anybody else have a thought about that? Okay, as long as it makes sense. Okay, so let's look at this. Um, this now this is a model that again I'm using Ed Hennenberg because he's such an expert on this. But this is a model of parish life uh, that was really introduced because of what I said about the insights from Vatican II. Um, but we really need to, re to understand this. And in many cases and in many parishes, we need to reclaim this. Now, what I'm going to describe to you um, on the next two slides I can uh, relate to because two parishes that I worked in, we had this approach to ministry, this uh, what Ed Hennenberg refers to as a relational approach. But he says the practice of ministry involves the ordained and the non-ordained. And here's a quote from his book, uh, Ministries, a Relational Approach. He says, the baptized have taken up their call to actively serve the reign of God. The ordained priest has been gradually moving into a new, more challenging position from standing at the apex of a pyramid that was the parish to serving at the center of an active community from being the minister to becoming a ministerial leader and coordinator of many ministries. That is a really important statement that he makes here. And the first part of it, the baptized have taken up their call. That comes from Lumen Gentium, that universal call to holiness, that recognition that our baptism means something, first of all. And out of that, um, ministries flourished for lay men and women. But um, this statement presents a, a model for parish staffs or parish teams. It depends. What In different parishes, they call it different things. In different dioceses, they call it different. Here, where I live in the Diocese of Rockville Center, some parishes call it the pastoral team. That's the pastor working with different heads of ministries. Or where I worked, we were the pastoral staff versus the support staff. But I'm going to show you the next slide, my poor attempt at creating a diagram of what this means. But the whole idea is that the pastor leads from the center. Now, this is a concept of, of good leadership in general. Uh, and when we have a session on leadership, we'll, we'll talk more about this. But um, this is what uh, the previous slide was saying, that it, the pastor can't be here at the top doing everything. He needs to be leading from the center, and he needs to have, and this is the ideal, but I worked in two ideal parishes that he that the pastor would have an expert in each of these fields for example an expert in the catechetical field 
not a volunteer, somebody who has studied uh, pastoral theology uh, and knows what they're doing in regard to catechesis. Liturgical, all right? Social ministry, outreach, right? Family ministry, education. So we're just using an example where I worked and we had, I think I mentioned last week, we had 19 people on our pastoral staff because it was a parish of 6,000 people. But the pastor was a true leader from the center and had experts in, um, in the different fields to work with him. Catechetical question came up. Um, he would look to me and say, well, this is your area. This is your expertise. What do you think? Liturgical and music ministers uh, went with that. You know, okay, what, what do you think? We had two in the, in the uh, area of social ministry. We had uh, two uh, Dominican nuns that um, did worked with direct services and indirect services um, for uh, the poor. Uh, in the parish. Um, and uh, so this is a model. I know it doesn't exist everywhere. Um, just looking at that, can anybody, can any of you share some experiences in your own parishes? Does it look like this? Does it more look like the, the pastor is at the apex of the pyramid? What What's your thoughts? It definitely looks like this in my parish. Uh, he really does pick people that he sees has certain talents or certain expertise and he puts them in charge always though kind of being the final word in everything and, and, mm -hmm. and, and being the source of everything mm -hmm. but certainly he, he does delegate in this manner as well he's not he's not in the nitty-gritty of, of, of everything right okay that's good to hear I like it it's it's you know it, it's uh you know, we used to have this idea, uh, idea that um, the priest should be doing everything, but it's impossible. He can't, and he shouldn't, you know? Anybody else want to say something? Well, I've seen it two different ways. In my, the former pastor had this exact system where we had 20 different uh, members on the parish council, and uh -huh. everyone had a separate role, and they all reported to him, and we had monthly meetings just to go over the progress and everything. And it was phenomenal because everybody had a, a you know, a, a lot to, on their plate. But the new pastor has done away with all that. <laughs> See, that's sadly, uh, and I know George brought up that question uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, first session, but that sometimes happens, you know, and that's yeah. too bad. The, the risk factor Ashton hour, um, our, our parish, it's, Monsignor is amazing. He lets everyone step up and, and contribute and he leans on it. But there are some times you need the pastor to lead. And oh, the ministry can get a little out of hand. And uh, I, I, I'm not saying, I, I don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying the pastor shouldn't lead, but he leads from here. No, no, I'm not criticizing yeah. what you're saying. No, yeah. I'm, saying, I'm yeah. just saying that that's where sometimes yeah. they delegate way too much. And... Mm -hmm. You really need him to step in, but he's afraid to upset the person or the committee or the group that's doing a certain. And if it's conflicting with other ministries, which it can, I don't need to get into our, <laughs> our issues. Um, 
that conflict doesn't get resolved because it, it and it really needs needs to. So now, the question I have from seeing that last quote, which I found fascinating, is: Are they training seminarians? Are they training priests this way now? Because unless they come out with that managerial, that's a skill. That's not something that people can just intuitively. You know, delegation and management is a, a really difficult skill. Yeah, that's what we would call uh, leadership in ministry. You know, this a style of leadership. You know, and it's. Um, can you all hear me? Yep. Yes. Oh, okay. I I wasn't sure if my connection was lost for a moment. Um, it's a style of ministry um, that they certainly get in their pastoral uh, formation. Um, you know, but again, what happens when the individual gets out there can often be another story. That's an observation, not a judgment. Um, but what we try to do with seminarians when they go uh, for their pastoral assignments or their pastoral year, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, and um, Rockville Center, uh, in their third year, they have a pastoral year. But uh, the parish that they are assigned to is chosen very carefully uh, because according to the pastor who can mentor them and teach them, uh, that we would call them supervisors. Um, so it's, um, they're chosen very carefully that um, uh, Father Veris, who is in charge of that, um, will know that they're getting the best pastoral formation that we, we could uh, hope to expect so um absolutely in their pastoral formation you know but um again and this isn't something that happens overnight either no it needs um, practical experience yeah yeah you just no no professional school teaches that when you come out it's all practical experience and and the longer you're out the better you're able to manage and you know how to manage it's it's you know it cannot be learned in the classroom that that's right and that's we talked about that early on that it you learn the context for learning is the parish setting you know exactly you, just you, like yeah yeah just like for surgeons the learning is the or yeah for better or worse right that's right exactly so so you know here like in a course like this you're getting all these theories and the my hope is that in whatever limited experience you're having in a parish whatever the case may be and we talked about how every parish is different that you can bring a little bit of this into the parish a little you know um step by step uh slowly um you know to recognize uh certain things you know like what chris was saying before regarding you know, with ministries, uh, sometimes it can get out of hand. But in my opinion, uh, and I always say when it's my opinion, I'll tell you, but this is my opinion that comes out of my own experience. When ministries get out of hand, a lot of it is because whoever is the leadership of that particular ministry does not have the systematic intellectual formation that is needed. They're making it up and right. working very hard at the wrong things. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, well, like you said, this is how businesses run and, and it should be also how a parish is run. Exactly. 
Um, when we talk about, and I think we have a session, uh, let me just, I think we do something, yeah. Uh, in the middle of March, somehow, we're going to talk about pastoral leadership in ministry. And I actually give you examples. Uh, there's a book that I use called Corporate Cultures. And it's about, you know, businesses and that the, how the church has a lot to learn. Uh, you know, you look at servant leadership, that that phrase was coined by the president of AT&T, Greenleaf, I think his name was. Um, so we're, we're going to look at that when we look, when we narrow this down more uh, and look specifically at um, pastoral leadership. Um, but the reality in some parishes is that the leadership in this outer circle um, is not always formed as they should be. And that leads to, I think, what Chris was saying. It can get out of hand. And then you have, like, you know, take, for example, this liturgical. You know, they're out doing their own thing, not and without the intellectual formation. Um, and then we, then we run into problems. And then absolutely, this leader from the center needs to step in and say, no. Yeah, I think it's also dependent on how, you know, how big your parish is and how many people that you have that are educated. There there are not many, especially in the poorer areas that you can you can find people in all these sub areas that are experts in the field. And then the pastor has a problem because he either has to have multiple people in these fields or he has to step up and do it himself. Yeah. So it, it it you know it's a it's a difficult situation. It's just dependent on you know where you know where you minister and you know what the what the situation is and how many people you have that are able to fill in those positions. Yeah, that's a that's a very valid point. And you know the diversity of parishes um, is is a reality. You know, and but but still I do think that, for example, take catechetical, and we will dedicate time to talking about this ministry. Um, there, we need, I don't care what parish it is, <laughs> you know, poor, rich, middle class, whatever it is, you, if you don't have somebody at the head of this that really understands um, basic theological concepts, and how to put them into practice and teach people to uh, be catechists, etc. Then we have a problem for the next generation. Uh, that we we have to discover ways. How do we we form experts um, in, in our varied parishes? Because um, the people of God, the body of Christ, will suffer if if we don't. Um, so we have to figure, we have to look for creative ways to do that um, in these diverse parishes. And uh, we're relying on you and our seminarians and our laymen and women, everybody to, to have a voice in this, to be able to, in, in the best possible way, to be able to just step in um, and be the best help you could be. But uh, you see, we're also uncovering issues and problems um, that um, are not new. But I really think for the sake of the 
church in general, we need to find ways to, to do this. Now, on the other side of the coin, uh, in relationship to what Anthony is talking about, um, a lot of my colleagues in ministry are much more successful when they work in poor parishes because people are very faith-filled because they don't have a lot of the um, distractions. Right, totally uh, agree, <laughs> totally agree. I worked in a uh, middle to upper class parish and uh, people, the church wasn't the center right. of their life. We had to teach them that it should be and it ought to be. And I know friends of mine who have worked in very poor parishes and were so successful because church was the center of people's lives. So you have that as well. Right. Yeah. So that, uh, we'll talk about that as well when we look at studying your congregation, knowing your parish. Yeah. I, I went then, I went from a um, from a, a poor parish to a exactly what you're talking about, a, an upper middle class to, you know, very affluent parish mm -hmm. and totally different concept totally different yep. concept with ccd totally different concept with kids going to church confession everything so a lot of that hinges on the family subset because mm -hmm. if these kids you know i'm teaching fourth graders if these kids aren't you know they don't drive they can't get to church and they can't get to confession on their own mm -hmm. so if the family's not engaged and the family is too busy because you know, little Joey has to go out and play a lacrosse game on Sunday and we yeah. can't get him to church. And he, you know, he hasn't been to confession like, you know, all year. Uh, you know, this is I mean, this is a problem. Whereas in the poorer parishes, you know, CCD, we marched him from the CCD class right into the 1115 mass. And all those kids went and the families were there with them. Mm -hmm. Totally different dynamic, totally different dynamic, which um which actually surprised me, but you know, uh, that's yeah. that's some of the challenges you have to deal with. That's exactly right. Now, what I would uh, along these lines, um, those of you who are in predominantly Hispanic parishes, uh, give me some insight because, from my experience, uh, we had a large Hispanic community in the last parish I worked in. It's like faith is just so much a part of your life. But get, let me hear from some of you. Um, what is some, what's your experience? Dr. Dean, um, my, uh, my experience in our parish, I mean, even throughout this pandemic, um, you know, we, our church was never, never closed. It was always open for private prayer, um, uh -huh. from eight to two. Um, and primarily who were in there, I would go on a Sunday just at a, you know, ritual of being at church on Sunday and you would literally see the um, Hispanic community you know it would be grandma mom and dad and the kids all where they sat you know praying and things like that so a lot of my um, you know catechists um, my my kids there so it was very different uh, coming from a, uh, a primarily white parish prior to the merge um, no, you didn't see that. You never, you know, yeah. there was, you know, like I think Anthony was saying, if, if, you know, if, if the parent didn't take the child, you know, they take them to where they just said, but yeah, there's always something to say, well, I can't go Saturday night because of this. And then Sunday there's a, you know, a birthday or a Christmas, you know, something else. Yes. It's 
me the excuse. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the Hispanic community, church is first, and then everything else follows after. And if it, and if you can't, if you can't make it to mass between, you know, eight and two or whatever, you you make it to mass and then you go to the function or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the primary focus is the body of Christ. I I would have to agree. How about like Raphael or Lucas? Can you tell us something about your parishes? Yes, uh, as as I kept looking at the sketch that you made, uh-huh. uh, I kept thinking. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the way uh, things work out in in my parish, we have the English speaking community and the Spanish speaking mass, uh-huh. uh, like George was saying. And my my dream would be that both communities will work together. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah. it doesn't happen. It's the English-speaking community and the Spanish-speaking community. And, and no matter which event we do, trying to emerge that, that both communities, it's still not happening. I'm still working on it, hopefully. But as, as you were talking, I kept thinking, yeah, but who do we have that we can work with a, a, a graph that you have there? And first, you think there isn't anybody, but there is people and you just have to trust them and, and pray and and guide them and guide them it will them. work mm-hmm. you have to bring what you've what you learn see that's where you'll fit in uh god willing as a deacon you take what you learn and then you train people to to make this a reality little by little you know yeah but do you find that uh in your parish that um that the the parish is a priority in people's lives well definitely yes yes mm-hmm. i mean it, it's it's so sad that we're going through this even uh last uh, saturday uh as we all know this week we were celebrating uh the presentation of the lord yes and one of our tradition is to bring the the images of and the statues of baby jesus that we place in the and the underneath the tree mm-hmm. right uh f- for the birth of christ and the mexican f- uh, families they they bring that that image and they get it blessed every year on february the second and and it was so packed at the church that we had to turn families away oh wow wow whole families i'm talking about telling a whole family about seven or ten people I have no room for you and and yes uh, they, the dedication is there yeah and the work is there uh we just need to prepare ourselves to uh save those souls Very and good. hopefully this family will come back i didn't see them on, on sunday it really broke my heart seeing their that, dedication and the, um because of the pandemic you had to limit the attendance yeah. yes yes wow that's amazing that's a, that is amazing and they making it in as cold as it was Saturday night. Yes. They 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 made it to church and yeah, it was my job to tell them, you know, uh. before. <laughs> <laughs> Very I mean, good. I, yeah. So so you pastor at church doesn't work. What's that, George? I'm the same thing. I, that's what I do on a on a Saturday and Sunday. You feel like a bouncer. Oh, (laughs) that's exactly right. (laughs) It's the hardest thing to say. I mean, 
I'm going to be honest with you. And again, you know, the Hispanic community, they're so understanding. They get it. They understand. Uh-huh. It's us, unfortunately, us, us Anglos need a little... Uh, a little <laughs> I, I was looking for a place that I can just place them and tell them just hanging there. But then the priest is telling them, you know, we don't want to lose the privilege of having the church open, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a risk that, you know, yeah. Yeah, Some in some places they have an overfull place. I know sometimes in the nicer weather where I go to mass, there'd be people out on, they'd leave the door open and there'd be people outside, you know, but it is, it's, I noticed myself it was getting a little bit more crowded, you know. It's, it's a hard thing. Um, it's a very hard thing. But I think that, um, again, what, what I'm offering to you here in this uh, class on pastoral ministry is, is the ideal, an ideal vision. And it doesn't mean that, you know, tomorrow you're going to walk into your parish and say, we're going to do it this way. But if you have the, vi- if you understand the vision that when you are in a position in a parish that gradually, gradually you work with, it's always working with the pastor and the priests. That's a key thing to uh, hopefully to have that collaborative. This is a collaborative model. You know, I know when I was working in ministry in the 90s, the early 90s, collaboration was like the key. Every workshop you went to was about collaboration, you know. But, but it was uh, trying to get us all to understand that we work with each other, we work together, that we complement each other. Um, you know, I know that um, for, you know, the seminary, certainly it's not a pastoral setting working on an academic uh, faculty, but being that we are church, we all have that pastoral sense. But I would have to honestly say that we collaborate we, the rector leads from the center because that's good leadership skills. And we, we respect each other's gifts and talents and we um, complement each other in, in all. And that's, that's the vision uh, that we want to try to in some way, shape or form uh, to make a reality in parish life because uh, it will certainly benefit uh, the people of God in the long run, um, and to enable people for these different roles. Uh, to um, there's another thing that's called helping people to discover their gifts. You know, um, you know, some people may not know that they might be a great catechist. You know. Um, or somebody who would be terrific working uh, with people in the food pantry or whatever it might be. And again, and that goes uh, Everybody has, has their gifts, um, but that doesn't mean they're natural at it. You know, somebody might have a gift to be a good catechist, but they still have to be trained and have ongoing training and formation. Initial and ongoing is, is, is the key here, you know? I always remember it, and then we'll take a quick break. Um, years ago in the Diocese of Rockville Center, I taught in what's called the Pastoral Formation Institute. 
and um, it was a institute set up by the diocese to train people for lay leadership. Um, and on our faculty, on the faculty, um, it was varied priests, uh, laymen and women, but there was one auxiliary bishop on the faculty, scripture scholar, um, well-known scripture scholar. But my point here is that um, once a year, we had a, uh, the director of this institute brought the faculty together for ongoing training and deliberation. And every year that bishop came and I always held him up as a model to teachers and catechists that I trained that this bishop could have said, well, I don't need that. I'm a bishop, <laughs> you know, but he came and he, he came and he was one with us, you know, not the head. He was out here. He was here. And the, the director in this case of this institute was leading from the center. And we had all of us uh, faculty instructors with a bishop included out here. And I always held that up as an example uh, with this idea of not only initial training, but ongoing uh, training and formation in whatever um, ministry that you're involved in. Make sense? Yep. Alrighty, so how would you like to take a 10 tops 15 minute break? And then we'll come back. Okay. And we're gonna get into the hot topic of the night, theological reflection. All right? So it's just about 8.05. So I'll see you in, let's see, 20 after eight, not a minute later, I'll be back. Okay. okay, see you in a little bit. a method to it and that's what we're going to get at here and then i'll open it up for more discussion but basically this particular book written by these two um authors they say theological reflection is the discipline of exploring individual and corporate experience in conversation with the wisdom of a religious heritage right there that's integration uh between our in, as you will see as we move on our individual experience and with the wisdom with our faith with our roman catholic faith the conversation is a genuine dialogue that seeks to hear from our own beliefs actions and perspectives as well as those of the tradition it respects the integrity of both 
theological reflection therefore may confirm, challenge, clarify, and expand how we understand our own experience and how we understand the religious tradition. The outcome is new truth and meaning for living. That's, that's, there's a lot packed in there. But it's basically saying that there is, an exp uh, there is a conversation, a dialogue, an integration between our lived experience and our faith experience. And the, the point of this, and it really involves somewhat of a conversion, you know, that the, the thing, the way I describe conversion that we're all called to over and over and over again, remember in the Catholic faith, we don't look as conversion as one moment, it's ongoing. So in other words, this is set, you know, we look at, we have life and the faith, right? But conversion means that life and faith come together. They come together in this dialogue, this conversation, this integration. And this will lead to what we're talking about here, theological reflection, all right? Um, this is, um, an in, it is an inter, intentional, it's intentional. It doesn't come naturally, you know? It's an intentional act of deliberating slowing down to take a closer look at our experience. It's a movement toward insight. It calls us to revisit our experience and revision them. And again, I use the pandemic as an experience because it's an experience that we're all living through. And I've said it before, we could either, we could either opt to say, oh, 2020, it should go away, and it was terrible, and it had no meaning, or we can slow down and look at the experience and gain more insight to this. In other words, um, what is the Lord trying to tell us in this? Because there's got to be a message here, you know? in and through all of this there's a message and we need to be able to step back and look at it and say well what are the fruits of this pandemic you know um what what in my own ex lived experience what is the lord trying to tell me for me personally i really think the lord was telling me slow down <laughs> you know and and just take things a little easier, you know? Um, I don't know, and for everybody, it could be different. Uh, but then in my experience, there are people out there that find no meaning in it at all. And there's meaning in everything. And the point here is to take all of our experience of life, be it illness, be it death. You know, here we are, we're all experiencing the death of our beloved Father O'Reilly. What is the meaning in that? For each one of us you know how do we trust enough in the Lord you know to to look for the meaning and have deeper insight when our hearts are troubled and Jesus says as we said in the beginning of class in John 14 do not let your hearts 
be troubled. Wow. You know, we need to be able to intentionally engage in this act of slowing down and taking a closer look at our experiences. Not always easy, but boy, the fruits are terrific. Terrific. Does that make sense so far? So, so what we, we need to look at is experience, you know, and it, 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 this requires a real paying attention to what's going on in our life on every level. Experience is the whole person. It's everything about us, our ideas, our feelings, and our insights, and to, to not let them go. Sometimes I'll get a thought or an idea, and I know that there were times where I say, oh, don't think that way, or you can't think that way. But in my own spiritual journey, I don't do that anymore. I say, well, no, let me stop. I'm thinking of that, so it's got to have some meaning. I'm not just going to blow it off as being ridiculous. You know, you know what I mean? So, so we have to embrace the experience uh, that experiences that we have, okay, and honor it. Um, and and the idea here is then to look at the tradition, our faith heritage, sacred scripture, and doctrine. Integrate those. Like being able to say, when I got the news that Father O'Reilly died on Monday, my immediate reaction was, I am devastated my closest colleague right i'm his associate we worked hand in hand that was my initial reaction and then i had to slow down as the it said before and i i had to pray think what's going on and immediately it came to me do not let your hearts be troubled you see so that was that integration of my initial feeling and connecting it with scripture well what what would jesus say and in that line do not let your hearts be troubled jesus is telling us you have a choice you can stay on the human level and be devastated and trouble or you can enter into the spiritual enter into my graces and trust me you see you see what I'm getting at here? That integration of experience and tradition. And we need to be able to do this on every level of our lives, no matter what it is. That's the key to theological reflection. That's the key to successful pastoral life, human life, spiritual life. You see? To be able to do this. And it has it's intentional because it's not going to come naturally. The natural reaction was devastation, but intentionally I began to think about it and pray with it. And Jesus spoke to me, do not let your hearts be troubled. You see? Okay. Here's, this is out of a book. It's a, I like the, it's a pretty poor picture, but I took a picture of it from the book, but it, it shows you this, this, um, Tradition and experience, and in the middle, the, the colored section, the uh, where it's colored in, is theological reflection, where they intersect, where our experience intersects with the tradition. 
that's where the Lord is saying, do not let your heart be troubled. You see? And we, we have to allow this, that it's not just two separate circles of experience in life. What I said before, life here, faith here. They've got to come together. And it's an intentional, that whole thing. That's what Sherry Riddell means by becoming intentional disciples. Okay? It's, it's, it's really, um, a, I just think it's a fascinating, very helpful way of looking at life. Um, absolutely uh, helpful, um, fruitful, um, fruitful way of looking. Um, again, from that same book, theological reflection is a process of seeking meaning. And process always means it can happen overnight. You know, it's, it takes time, God's time, that he will help us to find meaning relies on the rich heritage of our Christian tradition as a primary source for wisdom and guidance. It presumes the foundingly incarnational God present in human life. That's what I said before, that the most important thing that we could understand and then teach to others is that God is active and present in your life. And that's because of the incarnation, right? Providential, meaning God cares for us, and God always cares for us. He never, never, never will not care for us. And regulatory, course of deepening knowledge of God and self, this quality of human experience. This is why uh, systematic intellectual formation is so important, because we need to deepen our knowledge of God. Because the deeper, the more we know, the more we understand, makes this process of seeking meeting almost easier. You know, if I didn't know sacred scripture, would I know that Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled? You know, I wouldn't know that. You see what I mean? So the more we know, it's so it becomes so important to this process. So this concept this aspect of ministry that we can't leave out i know that our seminarians i mentioned before their pastoral assignments they they need to do theological reflection i'm not sure how if it's weekly or monthly but they engage in this systematic way of looking at their pastoral experience um you know what happens in a parish we could get all uh, you know, upset at things that go on, but when we integrate it with our faith, well, it gives us a, di a different insight, perhaps. Uh, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for in your integration papers. So, and here I use that word. Theological reflection helps us integrate our everyday experience with our faith. And that means our everyday experience at work, in ministry, in our family, whatever. Um, that we we need to integrate it with our faith. So here you go in red. We have a reflection question for you. Does my Catholic faith help me to discover the answers to questions? What do you think? So I think it's just another tool in the process of answering questions. Um, for me, it, it kind of 
allows to see and understand like both sides of many issues, especially with what I do for a living because I deal with head and neck cancer patients that are gravely ill, palliative care patients that are dying. Um, What I realized is that, and this is my own reflection when my parents were dying and they were in the hospital and colleagues that I had for 18 to 20 years, like refused to even talk to me at that point. And that's when I kind of thought to myself, you know, Unfortunately, as a surgeon, we're, you know, and as doctors, we're kind of hardwired to treat and, you know, cure patients. But when we can't anymore, we kind of just pass them off. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, if you're going to be a complete physician, then you got to be, especially when you're dealing with cancer and palliative care, you've got to be um, in the unit circle of life, 360 degrees, meaning that you don't only take care of the physical, but you also take care of the spiritual. So what I realized when my parents were dying was that I didn't need, you know, my colleagues to to tell me what needed to be done or what didn't need to be done. I needed them to just kind of tell me that it was kind of going to be all right. And I didn't get that. And I thought, you know, after I came away and after they passed away, I, I kind of thought to myself, well, I did that. I, you know, I've been doing that for years with my patients. So when I start, and, and that was one of the biggest things that, you know, that caused me to go into the deacon program and to get involved with the church after being out for many, many years. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think that does it, you know, does it help me to discover the answer to the questions? I think, again, you know, it's a tool in this whole, you know, algorithm of life that mm-hmm. you need to you need to have that that sort of you have to have two sides of the of, of the equation you can't just have one and then blow off the other um and you know and, and and i learned a lot from that experience with my parents and again like i said this that was my impetus for you know going into this because i just thought geez you know for all the people that i've treated throughout my whole life i just missed that whole other portion and, you know, and it's sad to me, and I'm sorry that I did that, but, you know, I'm a better person for it now. That's great. Thank you for sharing all that. That's really, uh, there's depth there and really profound experience. You know, and again, you know, we could stay on the human level or we can look for the graces. Yeah. And that was a real grace that you gained from, you know, the experience of your parents dying. Yeah. You know? And you said it before. It's, you know, it's a... You know, it's a conversation with God, right? Um, The only thing is, is that it can't be a one-sided conversation. You have to listen. Ah, always. Which is most important. And that was Mm -hmm. the thing, is that I, you know, I didn't get the listening part. Mm -hmm. Because I really didn't think that it was there. But I can tell you that it's it's there. And, um... You know, that's really all I can say. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you, uh, Anthony. That's great. Anybody else, please give us uh, something. For me, um, I want to say my Catholic faith is a, is is more than just a tool because I feel like the other side of it would just be like life itself. That would be my 
my other my other side is like life and then Catholic life. Like even when I first spoke to Dr. Eschenhauer, I spoke about how um, I think about my own life as like before God and after God, and um, and and I do think of them as two different people, two different everything. Like there was this whole moments where I did have to um, forgive myself for that person that I was before God. I'm like, you just didn't know anybody or just how you, you just said, doctor, um, you kind of have to know you, you have to know. So you can turn to the Catholic church. So you can turn to the answers. So you can turn to God. So you can turn to scriptures. Um, uh, for me, definitely. I want to say when big life questions come up, and I do want to mention Father O'Reilly. Um, so there was one thing that kept on coming to my heart after a catechism class two years ago for second graders. And I was emphasizing that Jesus died for us, Jesus died for us. And one of the kids said, he, he was like, well, how did he die? like oh my gosh like i missed that whole part of you know and i'm well it wasn't something passive like i just i remember maybe them the word died was very much a passive thing like my grandmother died or my aunt died or something of that nature you know and i'm like no like jesus allowed himself to be killed for us like that's what what came out of my heart you know like holy spirit inspired i want to say so I was just like, no, he allowed himself to be killed for us. And then I was like walking around the whole church, trying to find the crucifix, trying to explain everything. And um, a year later, my brother got to, my brother, my father and my mother all got to see the Pope. So I didn't get to go, but I sent him a letter. And I said, I told them about this experience. I'm like, maybe there's something there. There's something there that we might think of Jesus's death as being passive and not something that was that was more done to him that was more aggressive that was more intentional and those were things that I I, I didn't want to share with just any priest or any anyone um, and I'm like I can share with the pro first of all she's not seeing my face <laughs> and here I am challenging all this you know and I did receive a letter back but they didn't like they didn't answer my question. <laughs> so one night I was with Father Kevin already, and I was just like, I have to ask him, I have to tell him this. So and the class was like done. There was like one other person there, and I told him, and he literally he was just like, No, Victoria, like, yes, he allowed himself to be killed for us, yes. But he was always in control. And I remember him telling me that, and I'm like, whoa, like. Like that was like one of my questions and I would just like keep on going back to that. And I'm like, how did the church get this wrong? How did we get this wrong for so long, you know? And just like with the certainty that he answered it, I was just like, wow, like I got it. I got it. He yeah. always in control. If he did not want to let himself be killed, he would have not let himself be killed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and going back to your story, you know, before you you know, discovered God in your own life. He was there in control. He was there, but you hadn't responded yet. 
and God is, that's the, the, what I was thinking of as you were talking, that God is always revealing himself to us, always. But we need to respond to it. And we, we see now you can help others. You can teach others what you're telling us so that they will know. No, God is always with you. God is always caring for you. God, God is the one, you know, not like a, a puppeteer controlling because we have free will, but that he's always there and caring for us and reaching out to us. And it goes, what Anthony said, the key is we need to, to listen. Uh, well, I think I have a little bit more about that, but what you say is true. So you're the same Victoria, but you've, allowed, you've responded to the God that has always been within you. You see? And that, and now, you know, um, the, and the more you know, the better, right? You see? Yeah. Uh, that somebody, and that's your memory now of Father O'Reilly. Hold dear to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that will give you deeper insight and, and just clarify things throughout your whole life. Just think of that moment that you had with him, that clarity. And, and you say to yourself, I want that. And the more that you study, it will be integrated into your spiritual life. Remember, the intellectual systematic study of theology nourishes the spiritual life. That, that's just a fact that it does. And it, and it helps us to be able to make this integration. Thank you so much, Victoria, for that. Uh, let me just check. Please, anybody else want to say anything about this? Um, can I, Dr. Eschenauer? Oh, absolutely, Stephen. Um, two things. And you can tell me if this makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. The last time I was able to teach what you said before the pandemic hit, um, I had a tough group of kids, eighth graders, tough, tough group. And, you know, there was times I was getting very frustrated. So it was the start of a class, and I was writing, I think, my outline down on the board or a question some things on the board and as i finished writing the question just above the board was the crucifix so it just popped in my head i just turned around and said to the class what does the crucifix mean to you and my most troublemaking kid <laughs> just says to me courage and then another student who was a very good student said forgiveness and then another student turned who, who can never get to say two words she just said newness of life. Wow. I was just floored by the answers I got from these kids. Mm -hmm. As I can think of was, you know, a week ago you were really frustrated with this group. And, you know, the seed is planted in these kids. You really just need to keep working the soil, watering it, you know, tilling the soil, and it'll come. And, uh, it was just a really, really great experience. And it made me even reflect on, you know, Jesus was the greatest teacher. You know, he's calling me to follow and and be try to be a great teacher like him. You know, so um, number two deals with Father O'Reilly and my cousin Marianne. My cousin Marianne just passed away. Oh, sorry. Our morning. And Marianne was 
you know, uh, you know, yeah, she was very involved in the church, Eucharistic minister. She was, but she was always so giving. I mean, to her, to her family, to friends, to neighbors, to the homeless. I mean, she was just an amazing example in our family. And uh, Father O'Reilly, to me, was the same. He served. Oh, I'm sure Sunday he got up and he did his masses, and he probably had no idea what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it brings to mind, you never know the hour or the time of when things are going to change. And, and the two of them really set examples for all of us on how to serve and what God wants us to do. And don't waste a minute of time. Do not waste a minute of time. You know, it's because um, you never know the hour. That's right. And it shows us what we should be concerned about. You know, we're so concerned with so many different things, myself included, always. But ultimately, and go back into John 14, if you continue with that reading about do not let your hearts be troubled, basically what the Lord is saying, be concerned about the things of heaven. You know, be concerned about eternal life and what we do in this life, it will affect, you know, our eternal salvation. Um, and it's true. We don't know because life can change in a moment. Right. You know, uh, absolutely. And but we, has my Catholic faith helped me to answer questions? Yes. Tonight at Cousins Wake, we were talking around why, why we are in why Marianne? What what is the reason behind this? And if you focus on your faith, maybe there's not a reason. I called her home. Yeah, like why not? Why not? Called her home, you know. But the yeah. good she did in her lifetime is is an example we need to think about and follow. You know, this the father O'Reilly. Yeah. Right. So. You know, because ultimately, and we all learned this as children. At least I know I did. But, you know, um, and I'm dating myself, but I'm going back to, you know, the Baltimore Catechism. Why did God make us? To know, love, and serve, and then be with him in the next life. So ultimately, we were made for eternal life. And that's in our age. We, we don't, people don't know that. That the goal is heaven. The goal is heaven. And so it's, it, our, you know, our Catholic faith can help give us the answer for for the meaning of somebody dying. The meaning of somebody dying is is heaven. <laughs> you know? Um, that death is not the worst thing that can happen. Um, you know? I mean, if you read the saints, and they're the best teachers, they, they longed for that, for that moment, to be with the Lord, you know? And it, it doesn't um, say that this life here isn't important because we all have, there's meaning to life. But finding our meaning to life in relationship to our faith, uh, in relationship to, our, uh, to God and what he's revealing to us and how he's using us. And that's, you know, that's the whole purpose of this course, what we're talking about. How do we serve God? You know, how do we serve the people of God? You know? Um, so, I mean, I would have to give it an emphatic yes. My Catholic faith helps me to discover answers to questions. Uh, sometimes not immediately that I have to stop and say, well, you know, I need to bring this to prayer. I need to make it a prayer, you know? 
Um, last year I had an experience. Last September, my sister died. And um, my daughter um, was extreme, like extremely upset. Like, not that I wasn't, but extremely. And she, she, I think she was surprised by my action. Like, and she would constantly say to me, "Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you really okay?" You know, and and constantly would, you know asked me that and I finally said to her after it was after the uh, mass the funeral mass and the priest was terrific a really beautiful homily and I said to my daughter I said Stephanie everything that father said I I believe in my gut I know it in my gut and I know that it will be all right you see what I mean but I, I really did. Not that I miss my sister every day, but my f final words to her in conversation was about, she's because she was asking me about God's will and all this, and I said to her, be concerned about the things of heaven, because she was dying. I said, be concerned about the things of heaven, and don't be concerned about anything or anybody else. See, and I mean, I that I, I, you know, speaking from my heart and what I truly, truly can integrate into my life, and I can truly look at uh, that death is part of life, you know, and we need to know how to die, you know, and we need to teach people not only how to live but how to die, mm -hmm. you know. Hey, I agree with that, Doctor. My. Uh... My mom had COPD for 15 years, and in those 15 years, she was in and out of the hospital. She was almost like, we used to call her like, you know, a cat. She had more than nine lives. And this, unfortunately, this last time, you know, um, you know, it was it was um, just just before Thanksgiving, and she lasted nine nine days. Uh -huh. uh, and you know, we had to make the decision to, you know to remove the ventilator and things of that. Yeah. And the doctor said there was, you know, she would die within the hour. Mm -hmm. Well, it was about two o'clock and I think about 1134, she finally passed and I was with her. And at one point uh, I said, are you gonna go? Right. <laughs> are you, you know, we're ready, we'll take care of dad. We'll, we'll do whatever. Yeah. And I was with her when, when she passed and it um. was, like as they say, the, a peaceful and graceful death, mm -hmm. and I'll always treasure that moment. But I remember, you know, my sisters were there, my father was there, and my father, you know, got, you know, hysterical and stuff like that. And I remember at the um, after the before the funeral mass, one of my sisters came over and said, "Why aren't you crying? Like, why aren't you upset?" And I'm like, "I am upset." Of course, like, right. You know what I said? At 40 plus years old, I was a mama's boy, you know, and still am, even though she's gone to God. Um, but it wasn't until like, as you were talking about the funeral mass for your sister, it wasn't until then that I realized that this this was what life was all about. You know, it was a celebration of her life. It was, um, you know, truly all about her. Um, you know, yeah, the, the wake is for the family to be, you know, comforted by the family and friends. 
the funeral mass was 100% all her, what what she believed in, what she was ready for. Um, yeah, it becomes a selfish thing. Like even with, um, you know, with Father O'Reilly, you know, at such a young age, you know, you be, your first thing is, you know, why? You know, why did God want him? And I had a conversation with one of our classmates after Monday night. We didn't have class, but we did a evening prayer and uh, a rosary. Mm-hmm. And we after it, and oh, we right. Said, you yes. Know, we, um, you know, his life, he lived his life. You know, he affected so many of us. Um, you know, one of the young ladies that was in the other class said, you know, it's going to be said, though, for the others that aren't around for you. We have to keep that memory alive. Like, we have to keep his memory going as, as we try, you know, for my nieces and nephews to keep my mother's memory alive. Sure, sure. Yeah. And Father Riley will always be in the halls of St. Joseph's. <laughs> right? Or, or on the comedy street. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Beth, thank you. Thank you, everybody who shared such a, a depth of experience. But that's, that's what we're getting at here. And, and we want to be able to do that because it changes our worldview, uh, for sure. Um, that uh, so many things happen, and we could say so much has happened, you know? Um, we could say that and remain on that human level. Why so many things? I mean, since, again, not to bring, just to bring my own experience into it, from November, my husband had a stroke. Uh, my sister-in-law died, his sister. Um, and then uh, my son's father-in-law died of COVID. And now Father O'Reilly. That's a lot. That's a lot to take in. But uh, I'm very... I feel very blessed that I can um, take it to prayer, make it a prayer, you know, uh, because otherwise I think that I wouldn't be able to cope with so many different things. So that's that's the idea behind theological reflection, to connect whatever your experience is. Now, we're, we're using very deep personal experiences, but you could also take an experience, you, you work in the parish, and you know you have an encounter with a nasty parishioner you know and um how do you deal with that on this uh by using theological reflection you know that's another way that we have to do it uh as well so it there's so many different experiences that you can bring to this process now if we look at here there is a clear method for it and here here i'm just going to uh, introduce you to a method now. Number one, here it is, what Anthony was saying before. Listen, be open. In other words, attend to your experience. Don't do what I said that I used to do. I'd, I'd be thinking about something saying, oh no, don't think that way. No, instead I have to say no. Be attentive to what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing. To Listen to it and be open to what that's trying to show me, you see? So listening is number one on the list here. Assert, ask, what have I learned from the experience? You see? And then comes the action or the decision-making or a better term is discernment. And this is the goal here. 
to be able to say, well, what difference does this make? What difference does this experience make? What difference does my Catholic faith make? Uh, and as we all shared, you know, the depth of these experiences of people dying and everything, well, what our Catholic faith certainly will make a difference when we face things like death, that we can see the meaning in people's lives, etc. Okay, so that's, that's a method that's set forth um, for us to think about. In ministry is to allow faith perspectives to influence our personal life and our social life. And social life here means, you know, outside of our interior, what's going on in our family, in our work, you see, um, with other people, you know, and it calls us to transformation and true discernment. You know, uh, just uh, along these lines, sometimes, you know, you might work or live or whatever, have a neighbor in your community, somebody you may not always agree with or get along with. Well, that's another experience. How do we bring that to faith? What I do is, you know, if I'm going to face, if I know I have to face somebody that uh, that kind of uh, pushes my button, so to speak, or sets me off, I, I pray for that person. Okay, no, I'm going to pray for that person. It helps me. You know, to be able to do that, and that's that whole idea of now social life. I can't, I can't uh, uh, control it. Um, how I'm going to react? You know, I, uh, it's it's outside of my control very often. Is what I'm trying to say. That somebody might say something to me that might set me off. Well, how am I going to approach that? With an argument, with a fight, or not? See, so that's what, in, especially in ministry. Uh, we have to know how, and this, you know, we could get all into all kinds of things, and we will, like conflict management. When we talk about leadership skills in ministry, we'll touch upon that. You know, we're going to have conflicts in um, in ministry, in our in in parish work, um, and and we need to know how we're going to deal with that. Make sense? Good. So here I kind of set it up. What? First, the first column, well, theological reflection requires practice. Again, it's a process. It's not going to come like that. Attention, as we said on the previous slide, listen to it. Listen to that experience within you and bring it to prayer. Always bring it to prayer. And the result will be transformation. Most importantly, a new vision. I mean, we share deep experiences. We have a new vision of what somebody dying means you know that no the reaction isn't devastation you know the reaction is do not let your hearts be troubled that's a new vision um, we act more compassionate we experience somebody close to us dying we can be more compassionate toward another new and deeper insight uh, for sure and that's that's the goal here and in the end all of this, this way of thinking, this way of being, this way of reacting, this way of integrating, will 100% enrich our ministry because it's going to enrich the way we interact with people.
when we're, we're able to put our experience and our faith into dialogue. And, and we need to be able to do that. I used to say to catechists, when I trained catechists in my pastoral life, catechists 24 hours a day. That means you are a catechist when you are out watching your child play soccer. And what I was trying to, or when you're in the supermarket or when you're at work, what I was trying to say that as a catechist, a ministry in our church, there is a certain way that you need to behave in the world that that people should see. You're a witness, in other words. You know, you. I can remember having to dismiss catechists because of reports that came back to me of things that happened in the neighborhood. You know, and I would have to, in a very pastoral way, talk to the person and talk about the experience that they acted inappropriately in their neighborhood. Therefore, in my judgment, you cannot be a catechist in this parish. You see? And that's what I meant when I would say to people, you're a catechist 24 hours a day. You know, how you live. You see? Does that make sense, I hope? So, let's think about this. This is a profound statement. Again, coming from that same book, The Art of Theological Reflection. The authors say, unless adult Christians engage in critical and conscious theological reflection, remember, we said it was intentional, the Christian community's faithfulness to the gospel and its authentic witness to the gospel in the world diminishes. What do you think about that? Unless we engage in this theological reflection that we've been talking about, this intentional activity, the Christian community's faithfulness to the gospel and authentic witness will go away. So as ministers, Unless we do that, let's say we're, take all of us, that we never engage in theological reflection. Do you think that our, our effectiveness as witnesses will be diminished? Certainly, because it's an issue of, of, of uh, practicing what we preach in, in, in essence. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Anybody disagree with the statement? Or it makes sense. No, I I like to just uh, make the comment. Uh, people ask me why I was studying theology, uh -huh. and what I said was uh, I started out as um, as an inquisitor trying to figure out if I could pick apart my religion. And the old expression from um, St. Francis, uh, "The more truth you seek, the more truth you find," is uh, is the cornerstone that pushed me forward. And people find that statement very uh, very interesting, motivating. Sure. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Right? And the yeah. more truth the more truth you find. You never find an untruth. You know, right. it's the old thing about the mathematician trying to solve an equation because he, he knows the answer's there. So when you seek seeking God, you know the answer's there. You just have to keep going down in the uh, you know, as far as you can. 
That's exactly right. If I had a blackboard here, I would draw you a picture that we always have to go deeper to the center. And the, the goal is here, always go deeper, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper. Never stop, just keep going deeper. That's... Also, without having had our own experiences where we encountered God, so to speak, um, I think it would be very difficult to try to have credibility in dealing with other people's crises or questions or any other, you know, doubts you know, that they mm -hmm. have anyone in ministry about their own experience with the faith or their own the deepness of their faith, the quality of their faith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's and you know, and that's why, you know, um I feel that through for myself, through all the years of, of ministry and, and and now teaching this, that there's always a real experience that goes with it. You know, something that it, it that taught an experience that taught me that then I can understand it in other people much better. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, learn from them as well. You know, learn from their experience. You know, I mean, like, I hope my daughter, who's a, you know, you young adult, about? I hope that she can, that I could be a witness to how perhaps we can better, um, that how we can better relate to somebody dying rather than being devastated forever, you know? But I, I hope that my example uh, can help her to understand that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I had an employee that um, had a whole laundry list of issues in his life. I mean, from divorce to all kinds of things I don't want to mention, but and I, but instead of just saying, okay, here's your big problem and trying to, you know, shrug it off and, and say, okay, go back to work type of thing, I spent a lot of time getting to know him, understanding him, and I picked apart each problem as a separate issue as opposed to one big issue in his, in, you know, of his life, and we, and we resolved things as we went along, and it really was very interesting because I was able to, you know, listen, like we talked about. And, 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 you know, help him and guide him through the issues that he was dealing with. So, and, and it probably lasted about a year and a half of, of talking to him, you know, going and, and, and uh, spending time, like, like a lunch or dinner, just to try to get private time so I can understand what he's saying. And, and so it was, it was and, and I was be able to, you know, use my faith and obviously my guide of, of what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know, that I mentioned servant leadership uh, before. Uh, uh, Greenleaf, who worked for AT&T, and we'll talk about this more in the leadership section. But that makes for a better whole work environment. You know, you're talking about employees. You know, made a better relationship for, for you and him, etc. that you took the time instead of just blowing it off. Well, this yep. has nothing to do with you know what we're doing here but um that was my first reaction but then yeah, I, I had to think deeper yeah and, and say i can't just abandon this guy i mean you know he's he's yearning for somebody to to help him and, and reach out to him so exactly so you're doing exactly what we're talking about here that integrating in right. your in your in your um life 
in your life experience of, uh, of running a business. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's great. So, um, just you know, by way of uh, bringing this together, theological reflection involves discernment. I used that word before in relationship to decision making. A better word is that you're all pretty much familiar with discernment. Discernment is more of a, a process. It's not like putting pros and cons on a piece of paper. You know, um, I always remember when I was um, considering the position that I have now working in Yonkers, living on Long Island. And I, um, you know, right away I felt, well, God is calling me to this. That's how I think. But there were so many people saying, oh, but the traveling and the this and the that. You know, bad weather. If I were to put on paper pros and cons, do I work in Yonkers? Do I not? I wouldn't be here tonight. <laughs> but discernment, true discernment and prayer brings you to something different very often. Uh, and very often it may not be the logical thing to do. So theological reflection involves discernment, which is from the uh, Latin discernere to separate and um, this is a quote this is a book by sister Donna Steffen I work on a, a commit a national committee with her but she wrote this book discerning disciples listening for God's voice in Christian initiation uh, she works in initiation ministry which we'll get to at the end of the course but anyway the book is on discernment and I love this uh, phrase she said Discernment has a sense of sifting through and separating out of various feelings. I love that idea of sifting. You know, that's the opposite of a sponge, where a sponge absorbs. A sifter, you sift through, and you leave some stuff behind, and you take some stuff. So I love that, a sense of sifting through and separating out various feelings, beliefs, values, and inner voices in order to listen to the voice of the Spirit of God. That's, that's what we were talking about. Anthony mentioned it early on about listening. Discernment involves deep listening to that voice of God that is within each one of us. And true theological reflection is going to involve this without a doubt. So that what we said before, bring it to prayer, make it a prayer, no matter what it is, and it will be okay. Somebody said that earlier on. I want oh Anthony said I want somebody to tell me it will be okay, uh, it will be all right. Um, I have to tell you that that was the title of my uh, first chapter of my doctoral dissertation. Everything will be all right, and a Paschal mystery shows us that. That was my point. Jesus' death on the cross shows us everything will be all right, even with death on a cross. There's resurrection to follow. You see? We need to integrate that into our life every single day because everything, every single day on a certain level, we're going to die and we're going to rise. And that's life. Life is this up and down. Um, okay. So here it is in diagram. This is what we're doing with theological reflection. My story, I have my story. And then there's the Christian story, right? 
our faith story. Put it together. We've got to put it together. And that is, uh, you know, going back to what like Stephen was saying, Stephen Morganti was saying about catechesis, trying to 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 teach kids or anybody we're trying to teach. Victoria with the second graders. Always to integrate my story. How does it fit into the Christian story? Because it does. And bringing the two together. It's always, always about that, ultimately. And in theological reflection, we are doing it in a systematic way, um, as we talked about before, that attending, that um, asserting, and then that discernment or decision-making. That was up on slide, the other slide, this one. Here, this method. So think about this as you're writing those integration papers. You know, attend, be, listen to the experience. Ask what you learned from the experience, etc. So think about this. That's why I offer this um, section in this course. Uh, questions, thoughts, uh, concluding remarks before we talk about where we're going next. Dr. Schenhauer, I feel yes. I just went back to the method for theological reflection. I want to say, like, usually the way my mind works is when someone is presenting me with their struggles or their problems, I'm like, okay, like, I go through this process, like, almost automatically. <laughs> but when it has to do with me, I don't, I don't know if I'm so systematic. <laughs> well, but, see, you, you'll, you'll have to be intentional yes. about doing that for yourself. Yes. Sometimes it's easier to do it for other people, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a harder path to do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we need to do it for ourselves, and then I think you'll find that you'll do it even better for the other. Mm -hmm. But this this is an exercise. The paper is an exercise. Those papers that I'm having you do is an exercise in doing it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Doing it for yourself. You know, looking at your looking at your life in a set in a, in summary. It's looking at your life experience, picking out. You don't have to give your whole life. Uh, I'm talking about an experience like Anthony shared about his um, uh, parents dying. Okay or maybe something at work, or whatever it is, whatever you choose, and then how do you integrate it? You know, what are you learning from the experience there? So, you know, you can, you that's up to you. However you want to put this method into practice is perfectly fine. Um, whatever makes sense to you, okay? And, and just, you know, be yourself. A very wise person once told me, just be yourself. <laughs> so be yourself in these papers. They're not research papers. I am asking for good format because I like good format, um, you know. Um, but um, be yourself and don't, don't be afraid uh, to, um, to do that. All right? So I hope that that um, section on theological reflection uh, will help you with um, doing those assignments. So just looking ahead, what comes next? You know, we're—I uh, mentioned last week that we're—we're we're like a—we're 
little ahead on the syllabus. The syllabus is a guide for me, and um, it turned out that what I had scheduled for tonight, I put into last week. So I'm leaving myself some flexibility here because there might be some weeks where I don't get through everything, and I need, I like to leave a week that we have some more time. Um, so don't worry about that, but next week we're going to talk about discipleship and the practice of ministry. And I hope that you see how what I said in the beginning, we start broad and we keep chopping at it to go, and we keep getting narrower and narrower, all right? And um, your, your text um, by Kathleen Cahallon talks, um, she talks about discipleship. Now your other, just to bring to mind your reading, you know, the joy of the gospel sets the vision for everything. I want you to, I choose that as a text because I want, that's the context. That's the church we live in. Uh, Pope Francis's vision. And you get it so profoundly in that. So you have, that's the background to everything. So you need to, in my view, uh, know that document and know it well and apply it. All right? So that's where we'll go next time, discipleship. And we are going to link it with the, everything we do will, will be linked to the practice of ministry. And then your first integration paper, uh, I'd like to have at least by midnight next Wednesday. So try your best. Remember what I said about deadlines, try. If, if for some reason something drastically happens, just send me an email and let me know. It'll be late. Okay? Make sense? Questions? Makes anything need um, clarification? You're good? All right. So, um... We will conclude there, and I would just ask you all to keep our seminary community, of which you are a vital part, in your thoughts and your prayers over these next days. Uh, keep Father O'Reilly. He has a very large family. He has He's the oldest of six, I believe. Um, he has a brother who's also a priest, Father Daniel O'Reilly, um, and both parents are alive. And the last, one of the last conversations I had with Father O'Reilly, he told me his parents just celebrated their 52nd wedding anniversary. So I'm sure this is a very difficult time for them, so keep them in your prayers as well. So we close tonight um, in the name of the Trinity. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. God bless you all. Bless you. Have a good night. See, see you next week. Good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye. God Thank bless. You. God bless. Good night.